Hey friends, this is Michael Bohm with Youth Apologetics Training. I have a guest with me today. We're going to be talking to Russ Miller of Creation, Evolution, and Science Ministries. Yeah, I know. I've done a lot of stuff on creation evolu and evolution uh, as of late, which is a subject that really gets me going. And I know you guys are enjoying it. So today we're going to be talking about what the Grand Canyon has to tell us about the creation and evolution debate. Uh, really quick about Russ. Again, yeah, his ministry, Creation, Evolution, and Science Ministries, his website, creationministries.org. Russ's ministry is devoted to engaging atheists and teaching Christians the truth about God's Word, and more specifically, uh, about creation and evolution. Uh, Russ has developed uh, Creation Evolution Science Ministries website, creationministries.org, 14 PowerPoint seminars, uh, definitely want to talk about that later, uh, a DVD series and study guide, Grand Canyon and Grand Staircase tours, uh, radio programs and more. He's presented thousands of church messages and seminars, spoken on college campuses and national conferences and appeared on worldwide Christian television programs. Russ has also aired thousands of radio programs and Creation Evolution Science Ministry DVDs are challenging people worldwide to believe the Bible word for word and cover to cover. Sounds like a guy after my own heart. So with that, let's welcome Russ Miller to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Well, thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. So friends, today we're going to be talking about the Grand Canyon and what it can tell us about the creation and evolution debate. Uh, there's so many features that are present in the Grand Canyon that show us a, a recent creation of the planet, and also suggests that there was a global flood. But at the same time, uh, of course, we all know that in our schools, we're being taught that uh, the Grand Canyon was formed by the Colorado River over you know, millions of years, and we've got all these geolog geologic layers that are millions of years old. And so uh, I guess, Russ, can we start with uh, what evidences from the Grand Canyon are there to suggest that the, or, or what evidences do uh, geologists who subscribe to uniformitarianism, uh, what do they use to from the Grand Canyon to suggest that the Earth is millions of years old? Well, Michael, they, and this is what's been taught for 150 years now, is that the Grand Canyon uh, layers, uh, the layers through which the, the chasm is carved formed slowly over hundreds of millions of years, and then the canyon uh, was carved out over additional millions and millions of years by the Colorado River, although most knowledgeable uh, geologists are starting to realize that never happened. Um, and we'll talk about that uh, further down the road here today. Uh, but they used the strata layers there as proof of millions of years, and then they look at the big hole in the ground and say there's proof of millions of years as well. So we're actually talking about a couple of separate things here. We're talking about how did the strata layers form, those sedimentary layers of rock, how did they form? Uh, did, <clears throat> were they laid down quickly by water, uh, which is the biblical view, or did they form slowly and uniformly over long ages of never observed time, which is the secular or uniformitarian-based view. And then once you get through with the, uh, how did the, the stratolators form, then, then there's the second event. How did the, how did the canyon itself uh, form? What, what caused the canyon? And so there's two different events there. Now, I do, so, on, on the rim tours I lead, and I, I, I've done Grand Canyon rim tours now for, about 10 years, taking thousands and thousands of people to the rim. I also have led uh, many raft trips through the canyon and through what we call the Grand Staircase, which I'll explain here in a few minutes as well. I do an actual on-the-rim talk uh, at the edge of Grand Canyon with undeniable proof of the global flood right behind me. And anyone who's ever gone to Grand Canyon, and that's about 5 million people a year, Unless they're legally blind, they've actually seen undeniable proof of the global flood, but no one was there to point it out to them. And uh, so that's a couple of things we should talk about over the next couple of minutes. 
Yeah, absolutely. So according to our, our, our uniformitarian uh, mindsets, how did those layers get there? Well, of course, they say the layers form slowly over never observed millions of years of time. And I point out never observed because uh, real science is, derives knowledge from the observation of evidence. Uh, the millions of years of time are simply beliefs. They're not observed scientific facts. So they look at the sedimentary layers, and they claim that they formed in either calm oceans or seas over millions of years of time, and then the entire region uplifted about seven or 8,000 feet, and the waters abated, and then they, they went from oceans to dry deserts for millions of years, and, and, and uh, sand dunes. Uh, and sand layers form, like the Coconino Sandstone. It's one of the more famous layers in the world as far as used for older beliefs. It's the third layer from the top of the rim of Grand Canyon. And they say that it formed in dry deserts over millions of years of time. So they go back and forth from deserts to seas and say that everything uh, formed slowly and uniformly, that's uniformitarianism, over long ages of time, and of course they must deny the global flood because the global flood would explain how the layers form quickly, destroying the older beliefs. And that's what they are. Their beliefs are not scientific facts. And uh, Michael, everyone listening should know that the Bible, being the only book in the history of the world that lives on its ability to correctly predict the future, foretold that this would happen in the last days. In 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 5, we're told that in the last days, people are going to come along, walking after their own lusts, and claiming that processes have been the same since the beginning of the creation. In other words, the processes we see today have pretty much been the same in the past. That's uniformitarianism, uniformity. Foretold in 2 Peter 3, which goes on to state they're going to be willingly ignorant that by the word of God, the world it was, being overflowed with water, perished. The Bible actually foretold 2,000 years ago that in the last days, people were going to be claiming uniformitarianism and denying there was ever a global flood. Well, that's exactly what they do to come up with older beliefs today. And the older beliefs are the foundation for Darwinism, naturalism, and secular humanism. They have to have millions of years' beliefs. Now, these beliefs that are worshipped today were only invented about 200 years ago. They're a relatively new invention, and they are based on there never having been a global flood. So back to Grand Canyon and the strata layers. You have to decide, did they, did they form slowly over and uniformly over long ages of never-observed time, or were they laid down quickly in the global flood? Well, let's take that Coconino Sandstone as an example. Have you heard of the Coconino Sandstone before, Michael? Yes. Well, it, it's the third layer from the top. If you, if you look at a picture of the Grand Canyon, you see that big white band just below the top of the rim. That's the Coconino Sandstone. And it covers North America. It goes up to the Arctic Circle. It goes up to the to Connecticut. It, it's pretty much a, a continental... Uh, uh, layer, so it wasn't a local desert that could have laid it down. Well, anyways, the sacralists have claimed for years, and it taught in the, in the geology books that it formed in dry deserts over long ages of time. And if ever I speak on a college campus about Darwinism or age of their issues, and I do a Q and A, someone's always going to ask me, "Well, how do you explain the Coconino Sandstone?" To which I usually say, "Well, very well, thank you for asking." <laughs> <laughs> But I actually know of six individual proofs, any one of which proves that it formed underwater. Now, some are pretty simple. For instance, uh, desert-born sand dunes, if you look at the grains of sand under a microscope, they're, they're rounded off. The edges are rounded off. They've been tumbling along, and, and the grains are rounded. When they form underwater, they tend to form quickly, and the grains are very angular. They're very sharp. Well, the grains of sand in the Coconino are very angular. They form quickly underwater, not in dry deserts. Huh. Also, the Coconino sandstone is famous for having what they call cross-bedded sandstones in them. 
What happens is, is the sand dune can form either in dry deserts or underwater, and the sand or the water moves the sand along, and it forms a slope, and, and then it pushes the sand over the top of the slope, and it forms what's called a cross-bedded uh, sandstone or, or layer on the backside of the sand dune. And these are at an angle. Uh, the angle of inclination on these tells you whether they formed underwater or in dry deserts. If they form in dry desert, the angle of inclination is usually from 24 to 36 degrees. If they form underwater, it's usually from 18 to 23 degrees. Well, the angle of inclination in the Coconinos cross-bedded sandstones is about 22 degrees, which means they formed underwater. So there's two proofs right there. Interesting. Now, interestingly enough, they find millions of fossilized amphibian tracks in those cross-bedded sandstones. Now, think about this, Michael. Hmm. The, the, the fossilized tracks are always going uphill or at an angle uphill up the cross-bed. They're not found <laughs> going downhill or across the, across the forming uh, sandstone. So you have to ask yourself, wait a minute, if those sand stones formed in dry deserts, wouldn't the tracks be going uphill, downhill, cross-hill, every which direction? Right, right. Why are they it only sounds like, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it sounds like they're trying to get away from some water. Exactly. They got washed over the edge of that dune at, and, and, and landed at the base of the forming cross bed, and they're underwater. The only way for them to get out was to go uphill or at an angle uphill. And they'd walk up, they'd get to the top and get washed right back down. Their, their recently uh, laid trackway quickly covered by flowing sand so it would be preserved and fossilized. And they go climbing up again. And, and this goes on and on until they drown. And they laid down uh, trackway after trackway always going uphill or at an angle uphill on those phosphated sand stumps. So there's lots of proof that the Coconino formed quickly and underwater and yet it's one of the big proofs of older beliefs. Uh, they just don't have any evidence that holds up to the actual observation. It's, I shouldn't say evidence. It, it's not the evidence. We all have the exact same evidence, but it's the interpretation of the evidence. And they've owned the system, the textbooks, the schools, the parks, the media for a 100 years, and they teach their interpretation of the evidence as if it's science. And it's not science. It's their interpretation of the evidence. The better interpretation, just take the Coconino sandstone, for example, is that those layers formed quickly and underwater, uh, fitting the evidence and the biblical worldview to a T. Okay. There's uh, the Red Wall Limestone is about uh, halfway down the side of the canyon. It's about 500 feet thick. And they had taught for, for the last 100 years it formed in, in calm oceans or calm seas over millions of years. Then a Dr. Steve Austin discovered these uh, sea creatures called nautiloids that are buried in a layer about seven feet thick that runs from the, oh, the, the western edge of Las Vegas all the way through the Red Wall to the uh, far eastern edge of Painted Desert. It, it's estimated there are over two million of these ancient sea creatures called nautiloids buried in that seven-foot thick layer. Well, they're oriented. Nautiloids were a, a squid-like animal that had a long, conical shell, sort of, sort of shaped like a cigar. And they could be anywhere from two inches in length to over five feet long. And they're found, an estimated two billion of them, pretty much all oriented, facing in the same direction. Well, the reason they're facing in the same direction is they'd already been drowned and buried in sludge and that moving sludge oriented them facing in the same direction. So that took the red wall out of the older, slow, you know, uniform, material hands as well. So, in other words, the, the strata layers at Grand Canyon are stratified because they were all laid down by moving water. There are sedimentary layers that were laid down by water. So the strata formation, uh, we have to check that off in the side of the biblical worldview. So now we have to ask, well, what about the canyon's formation? Well, before I get into that, I think I have to explain uh, 
Uh, there, there are many theories on the canyon's formation, and no one was there to test, study, or observe it, so we, we have to try to make theories that fit uh, the evidences. Um, most people, in fact, that's a 99.999% of people that go to the Grand Canyon, they don't realize that um, there used to be a mile and a half of strata layers above the rim of Grand Canyon. Now, think about that for a minute. If you've seen the Grand Canyon, or you've even seen pictures of it, that's a big hole in the ground, right? Right. It's a mile of strata from the top of the rim down to the bottom by the river. That is a mile thickness of strata layers. That's a lot of strata. But there used to be a mile to a mile and a half of strata above the rim of Grand Canyon. And nobody (laughs) even told about this. Now, let me ask you a question, Michael. Why don't they tell people that there used to be a mile and a half of strata above the rim? Because <laughs> the Colorado River is not going to be able to remove all that. <laughs> exactly. In fact, there's no way to explain that but global flood. And a global flood wipes out every old earth belief, which includes humanism, naturalism, and Darwinism. And they own the system, so they just don't tell you about the actual facts. Can I ask you, um, how do we know that there was uh, an extra mile and a half worth of strata extending above the rim? Well, there's a few ways. The um, And when I do my, my on-the-rim talk, I do it near what's called Cedar Mountain or Cedar Butte. It's near Desert Viewpoint. If you come in to the south rim from the east through Cameron, it's the first uh, viewpoint you come to on the rim. And I do an on-the-rim talk there with uh, Cedar Butte, Cedar Mountain, just behind me. And I show people that this 900-foot butte is on top of the Kaibab limestone, which makes up the rim of the canyon. In other words, we're standing on the rim of the canyon on the Kaibab limestone, and these 900 feet of strata layers are above and on top of where we would be standing. And other than that, that butte and just south of Tucson at the southern entrance, you've got Red Butte. And these two buttes are remnants of the, this 900-foot layer that used to cover the entire area. And they've been completely removed for tens of thousands of square miles. So there we are, standing on the rim of the canyon with Cedar Butte, Cedar Mountain, right by us. And I've already explained the form, the, the strata layers and how they formed underwater. And now I start to explain the mile and a half of strata that's been removed from above the rim. And I, I can show Cedar uh, Mountain right there. Uh, when you're at the rim at Desert View, Cedar Mountain is right there. Cedar Butte is right there. Yet they say absolutely nothing about it. I mean, yeah, you've got to realize, Michael, this is one of the greatest geological formations in the world. I'm not talking about Grand Canyon. I'm talking about this missing mile and a half of strata. So they don't even talk about it. It's really, it's really mind-boggling dishonesty because the real evidence destroys the old Earth interpretation. So they just don't tell anyone about it. Well... Anyway, wow. from where I'm talking at the South Rim, so now I've explained the 900-foot butte and how it used to cover the entire region, and now 65 miles north. And people always ask, well, how do you know those layers used to be there uh, on top, the 6,000 or so feet on top of, of Cedar Butte? Well, right. when you head north, you pick up those missing layers in what is geologically called the Grand Staircase. Now, you can Google Grand Staircase, and you'll find information on the Grand Staircase. They're going to talk about its formation, though. So uh, from where I'm standing on the rim, I can point north, and, and you can actually see the Chocolate Cliffs, which is the first minor step of the Grand Staircase. And then 65 miles north, you can see the 2,000-foot cliff of the Vermilion Cliffs, which is the first real major step. You've got chocolate cliffs, and the next on top of those 900 or so feet, you've got the 2,000 or 1,500 to 2,000 foot tall vermilion cliffs. That's where we launched the seven-day raft trips uh, from the lead. Now, on top of that 2,000 foot of strata, 
and you go 40 miles further north, you come to the 2,500-foot-tall white and gray cliffs that Zion cuts through, and then on top of those 2,500 feet of strata, and about another 40 miles north, you come to the 2,500-foot pink cliffs of Bryce. So, yeah, Bryce, Zion, Vermilion Cliffs, and Chocolate Cliffs, that's the Grand Staircase. And from those areas south, those layers have been completely removed for tens of thousands of square miles. So if you go to Zion or Bryce, two of the great national parks out this way, they won't tell you anything about these missing layers. They won't talk about the formation of what you're looking at because it just simply doesn't fit their belief system. Not science, their belief system. Interesting. Uh, Backtracking a couple steps, uh, and speaking of, of, well, a little bit of deception, uh, you also mentioned in one of your podcasts I listened to uh, earlier today how that red wall, um, it said that, that we know it's millions of years old because of the sponge, you know, the sponges and the coral reefs that we find in it. You want to talk about that really quick? Sure. There, there are textbooks that teach uh, some of the proof that the red wall limestone formed slowly over millions of years are the sponge and the coral reefs that are found in them, in the red wall. And I've got to admit that it would take a long time for sponge and coral reefs to form. Uh, it'd be hard to explain through a flood uh, uh, standpoint. The only problem there is that I also have other books pointing out that never has a sponge or coral reef been found in the red wall. So <laughs> we've got books claiming that sponge and coral reefs prove the red wall formed over long ages of time. The only problem is none have ever been found. <laughs> That's the type of dishonesty that we're up against, and it's right there in the textbook. So it is. It's in textbooks, it's in the parks, kids are being taught these things, and they don't know they're being lied to, they don't know they're being deceived. Uh, why in the world would you think that there are lies in the textbooks? But that's to tell you, there's a lot of them out there, and it's unfortunate, but it's the way that it is. So, okay, let me ask you this, and maybe this is a dumb question, but there in the Grand Canyon, all those layers, uh, you mentioned earlier that, that some believe those layers formed uh, under the ocean, okay, and so we do find some aquatic animals in those layers, but do we not also find uh, all kinds of land animals intertwined, intermixed with all the uh, aquatic animals in those layers, or no? Not in the layers of Grand Canyon. The, uh, I mean, they do find some land creatures, but most of the, the finds are uh, marine-type remains, marine creatures, uh, the nautiloids, they find pieces of sponges, they find pieces of coral, they find uh, starfish, etc. But And these would be expected because they were laid down uh, in water. And that's a problem for the old earth interpretations with the desert-born uh, you know, dunes. So we would expect to find marine cre- uh, creatures throughout the layers, and that's exactly what we do find. Okay, okay. Um, okay, so what does science, modern uniformitarianism, uh, say about the formation of that canyon? Well, the formation of the canyon, they've got a real uh, problem here, a real conundrum, because uh, the, the few scientists that actually studied Grand Canyon, and out of geologists, let's face it, 99.9999% of geologists what they know about Grand Canyon is what they read out of a, a book, a secular book. And most of them still think that the Colorado River carved the canyon over long ages of time. But the handful of scientists that actually study Grand Canyon now pretty much admit it formed quickly. And the Colorado River had nothing to do with its formation. Uh, you know, for a hundred years they taught the ancient river or antecedent river theory that the, the canyon uh, was carved by the river. But the problem is the Grand Canyon is not cut into the plain. It doesn't go a mile deep into the into the plateau. The reason that it's so spectacular is that the um the Colorado Plateau was uplifted. 
called the Kaibab Upwork, where that Kaibab limestone makes up the top layer of the, of the plateau, and it was uplifted almost 4,500 feet in some places above the surrounding plain. So the river would have had to gone uphill for a mile to carve out the canyon. <laughs> so they came up with the ancient river theory that said the upwork formed, Michael, think about this, at the exact same rate that the Colorado River was carving it out. Wow, what a miracle. Well, the problems with this are many. It's been scientifically debunked for 50 to 60 years, and they finally stopped teaching it about 10 years ago. So nobody that's up to date, even with textbooks, believes in the ancient river theory anymore, although tens of millions of people think that's how it formed, because that's what they were taught when they were in school. Um, so they came up with a stream capture theory that, that somehow a stream, uh, a gully eroded part of the canyon and, and a stream was, was cutting in from one direction, the Colorado River from the other, and they finally came together. But that actually doesn't have any, any real solid evidence behind it. It's got a lot of problems that I won't try to get into here on the radio. It'd be hard to explain, but Right now, think about this, right now the old earthers do not have a viable theory to explain how the canyon could have formed slowly. They don't have a theory to even explain how it could have formed slowly. So they're trying to come up with ways to explain how it could have formed quickly and yet not fit with the Bible. The only one I've heard that that has any potential is they say that maybe the Colorado Rockies suddenly uplifted causing glaciers to melt, and the rushing water came down and carved the canyon through the upwork. Interesting. Yeah, the problem they have with that is that would also fit the biblical interpretation, although I think there are better biblical interpretations. Uh, One being that, um, okay, toward the end of the flood, uh, the continents split apart. Any continental drift that took place took place late in the flood. Now, sacralists, they also argue over whether or, not, whether or not continental drift occurred. If it did occur, it occurred late in the flood when the, when the, the one continent, which was split up by the erupting fountains of the deep during the flood, now split apart along where some of those fountains of the deep had erupted. Uh, there's crust is crisscrossed with about 50,000 miles of fault lines. Most of those are probably scars left over from where the fountains of the deep erupted. I'm going to speculate that toward the end of the flood, when the mountains arose and the valley sank down, they shifted apart violently, so any continental drift that took place didn't take place slowly and uniformly at today's rate. We see a continent moving possibly a half inch a year. They might be wobbling back and forth. We don't really know. But they didn't always move at half an inch a year, as uniformitarians believe. No, today's rates are not equal to past rates. Any movement took place quickly toward the end of the flood. It'd be like if you'd never seen a car rear-end another car. And, well, one car rear-ends a car, and in a hundredth of a second, its hood is crumpled. If you'd never seen that take place, and you come along later, and you believe in uniform, and you could see that crumpled hood, and you could... Measure the rate of the, that the hood's crumpling now, which is virtually nothing. <laughs> hundreds of millions of years to crumple that hood. But <laughs> could be absolutely wrong. Present rates are not the same as past rates. The flood made these things happen quickly. And anyways, any continental drift that took place took place late in the flood. The last of the flood waters are rushing off of the, what's now the North American continent. Now, there's debate on whether or not they're heading in an easterly direction or a westerly direction. For the sake of, of conversation, let's say they were heading in an easterly direction. As they dissipated, they began eroding away that missing mile and a half of strata leaving behind the grand staircase. They cut the 2,000-foot cliff, 2,500-foot cliff through the pink layers that are now found at Bryce. They dropped south about 40 to 45 miles and cut the white and the gray cliffs. And the waters rushing off the edge of those cliffs carved Zion very quickly. They dropped down another 40, 45 miles and cut the the 1,500 to 2,000 foot tall vermilion cliffs. And they dropped on down south from there. And that mile and a half of strata from the top of Grand Canyon all the way up to the 
to the top rim of Bryce. That missing mile and a half of strata was removed and dissipated around the globe where you can't identify it today. Now think huh. about this. So, so now that missing, that mile and a half of strata has been removed. A huge fault occurred underneath the Kaibab Plateau, uplifting the Kaibab limestone and forming very quickly the Kaibab upwork through which Grand Canyon cuts. Now, there's two good theories on the formation of the canyon itself. Late flood waters started to dissipate, become less and less. They just carved that mile and a half of strata, removed the mile and a half of strata. The upwork formed as the mountains arose and the valley sank down. Wow. So the, the Colorado Rockies arose, the Wasatch Mountains of Utah arose, and the Sierra Madres in California arose, all in a, in, in a north-south trending direction, like the continent had been sliding and suddenly stopped, like one car rear-ending another. That, that diverted the very last of the flood waters from that easterly direction. It diverted it south, where it carved out the scab lands of southern Utah and northern Arizona. And as they, they started to, to leave the continent, Completely, they formed a channeling event. If you ever stood on the beach, facing away from the beach, and the water comes in, as it goes out, it starts to erode the sand underneath your heels, and you almost fall backwards. That's a channeling sure. event. Well, a channeling event cut straight into the plateau, forming Marble Canyon, uh, coming in from the north, and from the north and east, the Little Colorado River Canyon was carved in this channeling event, but they cut straight down. The walls were straight up and down on these two canyons, and they joined at the base of what is the uh, of the Kaibab Upwork, and there's two theories now. Either that channeling event cut immediately right through the Upwork, leaving Grand Canyon behind, or the Upwork caught the flood water, and it would have been for a couple hundred years after the flood that run off from the Colorado Plateau, but eventually... The waters breached the dam, the Kaibab Upwork, and channeled through, forming the canyon very quickly. So either way, it's just a matter of was it right at the end of the flood or was there a delay before the waters breached the Kaibab Upwork? But, you know, if you go to Grand Canyon, you've got the straight up and down canyon sides. That's indicative of very fast formation. You've got the straight up and down walls in the Marble Canyon and the Little Colorado River Canyon. Uh, today, the, the old earthers that are claiming, well, okay, it formed quickly, but it formed quickly six or seven million years ago. <laughs> I'm trying to hang on to some, some time there, which is their magic ingredient. But another problem is if you stand on the rim of the canyon near Desert View, for instance, or a matter point, look for the rock debris. If, if the rock walls have stood there for six or seven million years, the collapsing rock walls should have almost filled the canyon with debris by now. There's actually right. no rock debris whatsoever. The walls are clean as a whistle. Uh, it happened not only quickly, but it happened recently, and that only fits the biblical interpretation. So speaking of, of debris, what about all the sediments? I mean, if, if, if the Colorado River cut that entire canyon, where are all the sediments? I mean, don't, shouldn't we see a, a line of sediments going on for quite a ways? Uh, Coming out of the canyon, that's a lot of missing rock. Absolutely. In fact, you know, think about this. Grand Canyon is 277 miles long, up to 18 miles wide, and averages a mile deep. Now think about this. It's missing 908 cubic miles of sediments. So 900 cubic miles of sediments. That's a big hole in the ground, right? Right. And we talk about this missing mile and a half of strata for tens of thousands of square miles. That The Grand Staircase strata that's missing doesn't represent 900 cubic miles of missing sediment. It represents 130,000 cubic miles <laughs> of missing sediment. In other words, Grand Canyon is not even 1% of what's missing from the Grand Staircase. So this is why they don't like to talk about it. If I say they, the old Earth side doesn't like to talk about them. So where are all those sediments? Well, the Grand Staircase sediments, they were dispersed widely by the late, you know, moving floodwaters, where you can't identify them today. 
they do think that some of the missing 900 cubic miles of sediments from Grand Canyon might be found outside of Phoenix, Arizona, and in the San Diego County area in Southern California. But they're not found along the edge of the river. They're not found down in the Gulf. Uh, there's no way the Colorado River formed Grand Canyon. The Colorado right, River has right. nothing to do with it, nothing whatsoever. Well, you would expect to find, like, a line of sediments um, along the river as it goes. I mean, wouldn't you? It, it's not just going to be in a, a model that includes the Colorado River forming the whole canyon. Wouldn't we see the sediments right along the Colorado River as it goes? Oh, yeah. They should be very, very easy to identify. And you should be able to identify which layer they came from. Which of the ten primary layers in Grand Canyon? Here they are, right here and right here, and they're nowhere to be found. So, the Colorado River had nothing to do with the formation of the canyon. Now, ask yourself this logically. If, if uh, rivers carve out huge canyons over millions of years of time, and if the Earth is 4.6 billion years old, but why isn't every river, gully, stream, and creek in its own Grand Canyon by now? <laughs> the answer to that question is that rivers don't carve out huge canyons, and if they, if they could, they haven't had time to do so. And it took a very special set of circumstances to form Grand Canyon. Toward the end of the flood, the mountains arose, the valley sank down, that mile and a half of strata was removed from the southwestern, what is now the southwestern United States by late floodwaters. The Kaibab upwarp lifted, as well as the Rocky Mountains, the Wasatch Mountains, and the the Sierra Madres lifted. Late floodwaters were diverted through the area and formed a channeling event that cut through the upwarp, forming the canyon quickly and dispersing the sediments widely. Now, isn't there a bunch of barbed canyons at the north slope where the uh, river enters the canyon? There are, and, and that's another problem for the older interpretations. These side canyons, they call them barbed canyons, they're actually cut oh. going uh, back toward the the, form, the forming Grand Canyon. In other words, they're, they're not they're not being cut in the same direction as the canyon, the big canyon itself was cut. And I think the only viable explanation of that is when the canyon first started to form, and this happened quickly, as it first started to form through that upwork, water was coming over the entire Kaibab uh, upwork. And as the big canyon, the Grand Canyon formed, those waters on the sides started dropping down into the forming chasm, cutting the barbed canyons, the side canyons we see today. Huh. Once again, fitting the biblical view, and the sacralists have a tough time explaining this. Right, right. I mean, hey, if you can buy the whole idea of the Colorado River forming the Grand Canyon, well, how are all these side canyons being formed? It, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, sometimes, um, you know, God likes to use the simple things of the world to confound <laughs> the wise. And one of the things I like to show on our river trips and on our rim tours is uh, polished river rock. Now, you've seen polished river rock before, right? Water runs over the edge of the, uh, you know, the rock along the edge and the river banks, and, and they polish the rock, polished river sure. rock. Well, when you get into Grand Canyon, if you're down on the river, the river rocks only polish for about 20 or 30 feet above the river. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. If the river carved <laughs> out the canyon slowly over long ages of time, starting from the top and slowly over millions of years, carving all the way down to the bottom, shouldn't the river rock be polished from the top of the rim all the way down to the river? Yeah. Why is it only polished for 20 or 30 feet above the river? Because the river entered the already formed canyon, keeping the lowest level, the river had nothing to do with the formation of Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon was formed before the river entered it. Now, uh, Mount St. Helens, when it erupted, we have a lot of similar uh, but smaller structures there. You want to talk about Mount St. Helens a little bit and, and how that 
gives the young Earth creation model quite a bit of, of uh, credence. Well, yes, I and mean, I think Helen's was the most observed geologic catastrophe in all of history. Everyone knew it was going to blow, didn't know exactly when, but it was it was filmed from ground level, from hundreds of cameras. It was filmed from the air. Uh, God gave us a really clear day at Mount St. Helens, which is somewhat unusual because it's covered in clouds the majority of the time. God gave us a perfectly clear day so we could see it, and we would all be without excuse. If uh, sacralists didn't undermine science with their religious beliefs, Mount St. Helens would be the most uh, studied and talked about uh, catastrophe in every geology class. In fact, every geology class should start with a three-month session just on Mount St. Helens. But instead, since it showed how things form very quickly, and since secularists own the system and their whole foundation is long ages of time, they don't talk about this. But Mount St. Helens erupted back, I think it was May 18, 1980, and it showed us how uh, hundreds of feet of finely stratified layers can form very quickly. And not just one event, in three completely separate events, hundreds of finely, hundreds of feet of finely stratified layers were laid down in a matter of minutes, crushing the old earth interpretation that strata layers form slowly over long ages of time. Uh, we saw how uh, coal layers form quickly. Uh, there's a lake there just north of the uh, volcano, uh, Spirit Lake that was literally uh, destroyed uh, by, the, uh, by the eruption, it was filled with about an estimated one million blown down trees, which wow. over the following years, uh, 10 to 20 years following the eruption, were, they kept floating back and forth across the surface of the water and they'd bang into each other and lose organic debris, which would rain down to the bottom of the lake and quickly be covered by inflowing sediments into the lake showing us how coal layers formed during the global flood when massive vegetation floated around on the surface of the water, raining organic debris to the bottom that was quickly buried by flowing sediments. Uh, it showed us how polystrata fossils form uh, quickly, not over long ages of time. Some of the floating trees, uh, they, they turned and floated as they waterlogged in the upright uh, direction with the heavier end pointed down. Eventually, they would they would get heavy enough and waterlogged enough they'd sink to the bottom and stand against the bottom of the lake in the upright position as sediments came in and buried them in what looked to be different strata layers, but not because they grew at different times. They were just buried at different times and showing how polystrata fossils and layers form quickly, not slowly. So Grand, uh, Grand Canyon, uh, one of the way that, ways that the honest scientists started interpreting Grand Canyon correctly was that at the start of the eruption of Mount St. Helens, the north slope of the mountain split off and blocked up the Tootle Valley below. We're talking billions of tons of, of earth slid off and, and blocked up the Tootle Valley. They had a, had a small river, the Tootle Valley or the Tootle River running through it. it. It dammed up the river and over a two-year period of time, a large lake formed behind the river and in 1982, the waters breached that earthen dam, and when water breaches a dam, it causes its collapse catastrophically by via by massive water and mud flow, and it carved through that earthen dam and left behind five complete canyon systems in a matter of hours, five canyons in all. One of them is called the Little Grand Canyon. It's about two and a half percent the size of Grand Canyon, and <laughs> it looks like a miniature Grand Canyon formed quickly, not slowly. And it got scientists, you know, honest scientists, scratching their heads and going, hey, wait a minute, maybe we've been wrong about a few things. And it got, it really opened the eyes to a lot of people about how Grand Canyon actually formed quickly, not slowly over never seen long ages of time. Now, um, what about uh, between the layers? I, I've heard you say that there is a lack of time gaps between the layers. you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, going back to, uh, to Grand Canyon, that's another one of the proofs that the layers formed uh, quickly in uh, the global flood and not slowly. There are no time gaps between the layers. The secular misinterpretation has been the layer formed and then laid there for, you know, exposed for millions of years before the next layer formed. But there's no time gaps between the layers. In other words, you see the top layer that we live on is 
it gets eroded by rain erosion and things. It gets plants growing onto the top layer. Well, those would be sure. time gaps. Uh, the, there are no time gaps between the layers of Grand Canyon. They're all laid down horizontally, one on top of the other. There is no time for any erosional events in between. So there are no time gaps at, at, in those layers. In fact, you get down to the, to the lowest of the flood layers. I, I should talk about there, there are some, uh, let's call the Grand Canyon Supergroup, which are some tilted layers uh, below the 10 primary layers. And oh. they're not through the entire canyon, but especially you see them quite well on the eastern side over the desert viewpoint. But they're, the, the inter- best interpretation is these were laid down horizontally early in the flood, some sort of a, of a, of a fault or a chamber collapse tilted them, and then they were quickly buried by horizontal layers once again as a budget laying down layer after layer. Well, the lowest of the ten primary layers at Grand Canyon is the Peat Sandstone. Now, it sits on, and when I take people to the canyon, I show them original creation rock and the first of the flood layers, which is the Tapeats. And I show them where the, where the creation literally meets the judgment layers, where creation meets judgment. You can see it right there. Well, the Tapeats where it lays on top of the original creation rock, which is the Vishnu Schist and the Zorister Granite. When you're on the rim of the canyon, or if you look at a picture of the canyon, what you'll see is, if you look carefully, and people usually don't notice this until I point it out to them, but when you look carefully down on the bottom of the canyon, the rock walls coming off the sides of the river, they are not stratified. The rock at the bottom of the canyon... The main part of the, the chasm is not stratified. Those are igneous rocks. The, the, the Vishnu schists and the Zorster granite are other schists as well. I used to tell people, once you've seen one schist, you've seen them all. <laughs> but the schists <laughs> and the granite are not stratified. Those are original creation rocks. Now, I'm going to speculate here that in the original creation, that was probably covered by anywhere from a mile to two miles of soil above them. But that, wow. But that soil, think about this, the fountains would deep erupted, and that soil was scoured by the flowing waters all the way down to what we see today as the remaining original creation rock. Then all those scoured sediments were being stratified by the moving water, which stratifies things by grain size, weight, and density. And it, then they it sorts were, it. They were then redeposited on top of the existing creation rock and the sedimentary layers, the stratified layers laid down by water that we see today. Fitting the huh. biblical worldview to a T and crushing every old earth belief that puts, and these old earth beliefs, the reason this matters from a Christian standpoint for anyone who's seeking eternal salvation the reason it matters is the older beliefs put death before Adam. Well, the foundation of the Bible, which I call the cause, is that God's perfect to see his creation was was crushed. It was it was destroyed by Adam's the O, original sin, which F separated us from our loving creator, requiring the cross, the T. I call that the cost. Creation Original sin, separation, the cross, our need for redemption. Well, what the old earth beliefs do, see, the, the biblical message is, is God gave us a perfect creation. Now, sometimes people will ask, well, wait, if there's this loving biblical creator, how come we live in a world full of death and disease and suffering? Well, the biblical answer is right there in Genesis 1 and 3. God didn't give us a world full of death, evil, and suffering. He gave us a perfect creation. What happened to it? Adam's original sin. Adam's original sin corrupted God's perfect creation, allowing death and evil to enter. And more importantly, from a Christian standpoint, that original sin separated us from God. Remember, Adam walked in the garden with God. Well, why don't we walk in the garden with God today? Well, because our sin has separated us from him, requiring the cross, our redemption, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, old earth beliefs put death before Adam and undermine that entire foundation. They undermine the cost and they undermine 
the authority of God's word in people's minds. They don't they don't undermine the authority of God's word. Nothing does that. But false teachings and false beliefs were designed to undermine people's faith in God's word. And older beliefs have been the the most successful attack on the trust and faith people put in God's word ever devised by Satan and his minions. Older beliefs open the door for Darwinism. Darwinism is a, a fruit coming from the older tree. And in our teaching, right. uh, 50 Facts versus Darwinism in the textbooks, I show people how to scientifically destroy Darwinism in four seconds flat. And I show fraud after fraud after fraud used to prop up the Darwinian fairy tale. So the age of the earth matters. It's the foundation for the secular beliefs for Darwinism, etc. Amen to that. Um, I had a couple more questions really quick. Um, I heard you mention that there is C14, carbon-14, that is intermixed in throughout all the layers of the Grand Canyon. And when you uh, test the the age of that C14 in any of the layers, it all comes out to the same age. Well, yeah, let me just... um clarify that. Studies have shown that, well, so, so the listeners know what we're talking about. Carbon-14 is what is measured in carbon dating. And it's manufactured in the atmosphere. And during the process of photosynthesis, plants breathe in CO2 that contain trace amounts of C14, carbon-14. Well, once a plant or an animal dies, it stops taking in C14, and, and the C14 starts to decay away. And studies say, and most scientists actually deal with the dating methods, and realize there's 200 branches of science, so we're only talking about the, the small percentage that might actually deal with dating methods here, but they pretty much agree that C14 would be gone in measurable amounts in less than 80,000 years. Some say 40,000. So number one, in carbon dating, they measure the amount of carbon-14 in organic remains, and they the less... C14 in an item, the older it's going to be, but only up to a few thousand years because the C14 would be gone. Um, so you can't carbon date something 200,000 years old or a million years old or anything else because the C14 would be completely gone. It's only good for a few thousand years at best. Well, studies have indicated that carbon-14 exists in all the stratified layers found in the world indicating that they all formed recently. And other studies indicate that the amount of C14 is the same from the top layer down to the bottom layer, which indicates that they all formed in the same event. Nothing but a global flood can explain that. And a global flood wipes out every old Earth belief. So, once again, the, the actual testable, studyable, observable evidence says the Earth endured a global flood fairly recently. And there's no way to explain that through the biblical worldview of a, of a, a world which has endured a global judgment by water. So that, uh, once again, fits the biblical worldview. Fascinating. Yeah, actually, okay. Actually, Michael, never has coal been found that does not contain carbon-14, with full coals, 250 million years old. <laughs> now, diamonds were tested from eight diamond mines around the world. Diamonds are supposed to be billions of years old. They all tested positive for carbon-14. So, you know, on and on we can go. Oil deposits, natural gas deposits always contain carbon-14. See, all those sedimentary layers laid down by water in which these things are found, they were, they were all laid down by water. Just like the Word of God tells us. Um, anyways, uh, the age of the earth issue is an issue uh, from a Christian standpoint because older beliefs put death before Adam, undermining that Adam's sin brought in death, separating us from God, requiring Jesus' death on the cross to redeem us with God. And older beliefs have provided the foundation for Darwinism, naturalism, and humanism, which have misled billions of people. And Jesus said you tell good from bad by the fruit. So the things we've discussed today alone should end any compromise within the Christian church with the secular-based older beliefs that put death before Adam. 
and undermine billions of people's faith. So hopefully every Christian in the world will listen to this program, and we will return to uh, worshiping the uncompromised word God in our minds, hearts, and souls. Amen. Amen. Uh, Russ, tell me about your book, Counting the Cost. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm looking at your. Yeah, my, I'm looking at your web. Go ahead. Sorry. My new book is the cost. The cost. And Sorry. That's a that's a acronym for what I just explained: the creation, original sin, separation, and then the T in, in the cost is the cross. Our need for redemption. The cost. It's the biblical foundations which have been largely lost in the church today because of compromises with older beliefs that put death before Adam. Think about this. Once the seminary has taught that death existed before Adam, and anyone teaching older beliefs, they've taught that death exists before Adam. Once you've taught that, you can't turn around and teach that Adam's sin brought in death, separating us from God. The foundations have been undermined because of older teachings. So in my book, The Cost, I cover the top ten older beliefs. I say, here's the evidence, here's the secular interpretation of that evidence that you've all been taught as if it were science, and now here's the exact same evidence interpreted through a biblical worldview, which destroys the secular interpretation. So I go through the top ten old earth beliefs. That includes the Big Bang, Starlight, Radiometric Dating, Carbon Dating, Grand Canyon, Grand Staircase, Dinosaurs, etc. I cover all those things through a biblical worldview. Then I go into the top ten evil fruit of old earth beliefs because Jesus said you tell good from bad by the fruit. Well, the first fruit of old earth beliefs is Darwinism. So I immediately break off into seven chapters and I cover the top ten Darwinian beliefs. And I show here's the evidence, here's how the sacralists interpret it, and you've all been taught this in schools as if it were science when it's really just their belief system. And now here's the same evidence through a biblical interpretation which crushes the secular interpretation and the Darwinian interpretations. And when I get through with the top ten older beliefs and the top ten Darwinian beliefs, I return to the top ten evil fruits, and I cover the other evil fruits, the key evil fruits coming from these older beliefs, especially now that they've teamed up with Darwinism, and that includes the loss of America's Christian heritage, and it includes the that's the ninth one. And the tenth one is I covered the compromise of God's word inside of the church today due to older beliefs. That's another one of the huge evil fruits. I call that one the, the ultimate evil fruit of older beliefs. And then I have a, a couple of chapters on ten things we can do to make a difference. And that's my book, The Cost. Now, uh, The Cost, uh, can listeners get that on Amazon or should they come straight to your website? They should come straight to my website at creationministries.org. So just www.creationministries.org. Just remember the .org at the end. And um, then I have my DVD. My, I, I have 14 different live messages. I speak in churches on most Sundays. And uh, I cover uh, the Darwinism. I cover dinosaurs, the global flood, radiometric dating. But I have 14 different messages, nine hours of teaching. Our DVD set has five DVDs. Each one has about three teachings on them. These include several of our on-the-rim talks going right in the edge of Grand Canyon. And um, anyways, uh, those are also on our website. Yeah, I'm definitely going to get the five DVD set. Uh, that looks awesome. So, yeah, Russ. It has been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for, for uh, coming on and speaking to us about uh, the age of the earth and the Grand Canyon. Well, thank you, Michael. I appreciate all you're doing, and I hope God will uh, bless you, your efforts, and this podcast, and uh, use it to help uh, keep some folks on that narrow path that leads to that straight gate into eternity with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, guys. Well, again, that's Russ Miller of creationministries.org. Check out his website. Uh, there's a lot of good uh, content on there, good information, resources. So check that out. And, well, that was uh, the first of my podcasts 
in a full hour-long format. I know a lot of you guys have been asking for this, so here it is. I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, starting next week, I'm going to be posting these on Mondays. So usually about somewhere between 7.30 and 8.45 p.m. Mountain Time on Mondays. You should be seeing that uh, hit the feeds. And so anyway, with that, I love you guys, and I will see you next Monday.